All right, grab a seat there. And uh, we'll pick up right where we left off, Luke chapter 18. So if you got your Bibles, turn there. It says this in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now I read that and I'm like, wow, what a great question, don't you think? It's like, I bet Jesus, in a sense on that day, was like, wow, finally, somebody just comes out and clearly asks me this question. And what a great desire this is. I think this desire is in uh, the life and the heart of every human being, this desire to live, (laughs) to go on living. And just prior to this encounter, as Jesus is, we're going to start to dive into it here, has this encounter with this young ruler. He had that famous encounter with the disciples when people were bringing their infants to Jesus, bringing their little children to Jesus. And and he would touch them and he would bless them. But the disciples felt that it was their need to step in and rebuke the crowds who were bringing the little children to Jesus. And Jesus responded by calling the little children to himself. And he said this, let the little children come to me. It's in verse 16, if you're looking in your Bibles. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So there's this awesome scene happening. The little kids there with Jesus, him blessing them, uh, rebuking those or correcting those who would not allow the children to come to him. And it seems to me as I'm reading this that it's right at this point that this ruler, we're going to find out he's a rich young ruler, pipes up with the question, uh, you know, if the kingdom of God, if to enter the kingdom of God, I'm to be childlike. He, He says, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think that's a good question. Like I said, I bet Jesus was like, okay, finally, that's a a good question. You know, earlier in this chapter, I want to just back you up because we, we had a good time in the early part of Luke 18 with Blake last week and just the things we were being encouraged from the scripture. And I want to back us up because Luke recounts to us a parable that Jesus told And it was a parable that Jesus told to some people who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. So let's just back this up and check it out for a second, and then we'll move forward. So look in your Bibles with me at verse 9, chapter 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Uh, uh, just for me, I like, I, you know, I'm an underliner in my Bible. I think that should be underlined right there. Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You know, one of the things that that will, one of the ways that that will manifest itself in your life is that you will treat others with contempt. Now, re- let's read on. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And verse 14 should be underlined. I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
So Jesus tells this parable of these two men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and he says this, it's the tax collector who left justified from the house of God. Justified means to be pronounced righteous, that he was declared righteous. Now, what's amazing is the tax collector is standing there before God praying, and he knows this. He knows that he's not righteous. By the actions of his life, he knows that he's not righteous. He knows that he's a sinner. He knows that he's fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, he, he knew that his life had missed the target of God's standards of what was right, what was good, what was moral, what was holy. He knew that God was a righteous, that God is a righteous judge who condemns the guilty. The tax collector knew this, that he only had one hope, and it was this, that God would have mercy on him. That the righteous judge would have mercy on him. So he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's amazing, Jesus says, he left justified. He was counted righteous by faith. He wasn't counted righteous by the quality of his own goodness or of his own life. He cried out for mercy and God counted him righteous by faith and he went to his house justified before God. And now, Luke tells us about another man, a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus with this question about eternal life. How do I have eternal life? It's an important question, isn't it? Like That is an important question. If you have not asked that question, you need to ask that question. How do I get eternal life? And you would think, you know, I, I, I almost think that Jesus, I want him to wave the guy over and high five him. Yes, good question. Finally, finally, a well-intentioned human being asking me how to get eternal life. But that's actually not the response of Jesus. Because this man had a problem of which he was unaware, as religious people tend to do. He was trusting in himself that he was righteous, like the Pharisee. We're about to find this out. So Jesus is going to expose it. He's going to give him insight into his own heart. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Which is interesting, isn't it? It's like, did you know this in Jewish culture, the word good was actually reserved for the Lord, for God. Outside of the creation account in Scripture before sin's entrance into the world, you won't read anywhere in Scripture that people are good. They were made for good works. They're capable of doing good. They can recognize good. They can aspire to good. But mankind is marred by the presence of sin. No man is inherently good. But God is inherently good. Goodness is an attribute of his character. It's intrinsic to his nature. The Lord is inherently good. God is good. The scripture says that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all, no shadow. There's no sin. There's no evil. And the nature of this kind of goodness is actually so foreign to you and I that it's kind of common that people don't really trust that God is good. You know, we say that, but can we trust them? We don't fully grasp that God is good and therefore we don't fully trust. But the scripture tells us, Jesus here tells us, God alone is good. 
you know, I could do some good. I recognize the difference between good and evil, but we also recognize this. There's a difference between us and God, and the difference is this. God is perfectly good. So when this young man called Jesus good teacher, I I, I have to wonder, and I think Jesus is pointing him to recognize this. Did he know that Jesus was God? Did he know that Jesus is the light of the world and that in Jesus there is no darkness whatsoever because Jesus is inherently good? In him there's no fault. The question is, did this man know that Jesus is God? You know, I, I think about good. In, in our culture, we, we, we've made a mess of understanding what it is to be good or what good is. We say, hey, did you have a good holiday? How was your day? Did you have a good day? Did you have a good dinner? When my dog does something, you know, that I like, I say, good dog, and I reward her with a treat. Or we call people good looking. You know, I like hearing that. And uh, our, our, our culture even calls, you know, what's amazing, our culture even calls evil good. We have stolen from the word good all its meaning, and we've watered it down to some low-grade version of what it should be. And Jesus said this to this man, only God is good. We say the weather was good, that movie was good, anything we enjoy, actually, we call good. It's a very poor understanding of good. We say that man or that woman, he's a good man, she's a good woman, and yes, for sure, they do some good things, they're capable of doing good, good in some ways, but there is only one who is good. And the Bible tells us that he is so good. He is so good that his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And so did this young ruler know what he was saying to Jesus? Was he like the tax collector crying out saying, have mercy on me? God, I'm a sinner, a tax collector who went home justified, righteous by faith? Or was he like the Pharisee who trusted in himself that he was righteous? So let's read on here. Verse 19 again. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. So what we see is is to show this man what was in his heart, Jesus actually took him to the law. He took him to the commandments, the Ten Commandments. We know this, the commandments, the Ten Commandments from the book of Exodus chapter 20, they they direct us in two ways. They give us vertical commands with regards to our relationship towards God, and they give us horizontal commands for our treatment of one another. Uh, And Jesus, what's interesting, took this man to the horizontal commands. He said, well, let's let's just do a little bit of... uh, reality check here and consider your relationship to other 
people, and although there's six of them, Jesus just rattled off five. He left one out. He mentioned the commands of murder and adultery and stealing and false witness and honoring your parents. Um, on the surface, just by the outward nature of these commands, this young ruler responded to Jesus. He said, from my youth, I've obeyed these things. The one command that Jesus left out on those horizontal relationships is, thou shalt not covet. That's a command that's not about outward actions. It's a command that gets to inward attitudes. It's a, a command that gets below the surface of the physical into the heart. It's, a, it's actually a command that can pin every single human being to the mat before God. Thou shalt not covet. Jesus left it out because, I mean, the master teacher, he knew this man was rich, extremely rich. He was wealthy. He had lots of money. So when the young man claimed innocence and in breaking of the commands to expose the reality of his heart that no one is good but God alone, Jesus said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I mean, Jesus asked a covetous person to do what he could never do. Give it all away. Let's be clear here for a second. Nobody gets eternal life by giving away all their possessions. We know that, right? By giving all their wealth to the poor. There, there is a promise here. Jesus says to him, you'll have treasure in heaven. Yeah. He tells us elsewhere, as we've seen in Luke, use worldly riches to... You know, grow the kingdom, but eternal life comes from knowing Jesus. Eternal life comes from following Jesus. And Jesus had exposed what was in this young man's heart. He didn't believe that Jesus was God. He wasn't able to live up to the demands of the law, though he trusted in his own righteousness. At the demands of the law, his covetous heart was exposed. And he became really sad. Really sad. And went away. Uh, extremely wealthy, but he went away. I don't know, got in his luxury car, drove off to have some filet mignon and whatever. But he was sad. And Jesus, verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said this, and I think this is important for us in our culture. He says, wealth is a great obstacle to the kingdom. Wealth is an obstacle for a man or woman to recognize their need. It's difficult, Jesus said, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's why elsewhere he says this, actually. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, I think about this idea of wealth being an obstacle, physical wealth. I also think this, besides physical wealth, it's a dangerous thing to trust in the false and deceptive riches, riches of your own righteousness. To count your own righteousness as riches in your own account. When you account for your own righteousness, there is a need to, to measure and weigh the quality of your life. And the mistake that we so often make is we measure our righteousness by the plumb line of another person. 
When I measure my life against another person, I never count my righteousness on the basis of someone who I think is better than me. No, I, I find uh, somebody down the street, you know? I find somebody else who I think, well, I'm definitely better than them. Look at me. I'm righteous before God. But our righteousness, we know this from the word of God, it's not measured against other people. The measurement, the plumb line, the scale that God uses is the law. The, the person against whom we are measured is the one who is truly the good teacher, King Jesus. And when we measure ourselves against Christ, we recognize we're poor in spirit. We're impoverished people. And that is when what is impossible with man becomes possible with God. Amen. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the crowd was trying to grasp this reality because, uh, you know, as they're listening to Jesus, because they were still associating worldly wealth with God's blessing. Now, let's read on. Verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? You know, if the rich aren't saved, like who is? I mean, don't they have the blessing of God all over their lives? Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible for God, with God. I love that. With God. Possible with God. It's hard for rich people, Jesus said, but it's not impossible. So I want to point out for you two things on the screen here. I'll just chuck them up there. Two things that we learned. The first is this. It's not riches that keep a person out of heaven, but being possessed by riches. Lots of people are rich in the scripture. I mean, Abraham, David, Solomon. I mean, we could only wish to have that sort of wealth. I mean, but they were not kept out of the kingdom of heaven. But here's the thing about these men. They were not possessed by their riches. And so a good question for us always to ask is this. Do I possess riches or am I possessed by my riches? The second thing that I, I just strikes me from this story is this, is how to account righteousness. Are you, are you counting righteousness as, are you counting, sorry, your righteousness as your riches before God? Or do we know the poverty of our spirit? And so that's why uh, I, I love when we go back to this tax collector in this text who says this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We, we say that, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Look upon your son. I have nothing but the cross of Christ. Paul said this to the Corinthian church. He said, we preach Christ crucified. We don't preach ourselves. We don't preach human righteousness. We don't preach the goodness of man. We preach the poverty of man and the goodness of Christ who was crucified in our place. We preach the righteousness of God accredited to a man by faith. So we can say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I uh, was in the city uh, the last couple days and we did turkey dinner yesterday afternoon with our family and then Eli and I busted out to catch the uh, 705 ferry back and uh, I got kind of like my, you know, Saturday routine for settling and getting ready for a Sunday service and uh, some of you know I, I like to go for a walk on Saturday afternoon typically. I mean, I'll adjust around what family has going on, but I love to go for a a prayer walk, and 
If the weather's kind of lousy or something like that, then I'll hang out in the house and find a spot to get alone with the Lord. And last night, the the house was empty, and so I was like, okay, I've been in the city. I just got to get my heart, you know, again here and ready with the Lord. And so uh, I just laid down on the living room floor and got a blanket there. I didn't go to sleep. I I was close, but uh, you know how prayer is. And I was uh, just talking with the Lord, and I was in prayer, praying for our service, and I started to just, I was just, I was contemplating like, well, I'd been hanging out with some of my family. So I was contemplating worldviews. And uh, I was thinking about four questions that every worldview seeks to answer. I'm going to chuck, they're going to come up on the screen for you. See, every worldview, uh, philosophies that people build about life, their religious understanding or the things that they believe, they're, they're seeking to ask four questions. Where do, where do I come from? What is wrong with this world? What is the purpose of my existence? And what happens like when I die? I want to continue living. So what happens when I die? And so I, I was in prayer. I was contemplating a particular world view, and I was thinking about it. I was thinking, okay, well, we both have our beliefs about the origin of man. We both recognize something is wrong in this world. We both are asking questions about the meaning of our existence. We both have beliefs about what happens when someone dies. I mean, when I think about uh, the, the origin of man, I, I, I know they would say, well, you know, they're evolutionists. Man, man evolved. But the Christian worldview believes in a God who is good and who made this world and who made man in his image. Uh, thinking about what's wrong with this world, I, I, I know this, we both recognize something is wrong with this world. The, the problem they have concluded is humans. And they're destroying the world, it's manifested in climate change, and, and thus the climate has to be, and climate change has to be combated by the actions of human beings. But the Christian worldview says this, the problem is not external outside of man, it's a problem inside of man. The problem is me. It's called sin, and my brokenness manifests itself in my relationship with God. I was thinking about this worldview. I was thinking, well, we both ask questions about the meaning of our existence, having a bit of an existential crisis. Why do I exist? And they've made it the aim of their career and their education and life's existence to combat climate change, going so far as to decide not to bring children into the world because the earth doesn't need more human beings. It needs a zealous religious battle of climate change. The Christian worldview believes the purpose of a man's existence is to bring glory to God. And this is done by seeking to honor him in all things. You get married, and you have children, and have lots of them. I'm a proponent of that. You work for the glory of God. Whether you're a manual laborer or an executive or a professional, whatever it is, an employee or a business owner, All to the glory of God. That is the purpose of existence. When it comes to what happens when we die, well, they've formed some religious potluck of ideas, end of which the reality is they don't really know. They're unsure. 
Whereas the Christian worldview believes in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That a person's eternity is determined by their relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And I was, I was thinking about these four things that every human being is asking and what I might say to convince that person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought, wow, you know, the truth is of their system is that it's actually very religious. It's more religious than my worldview. They don't even realize that they're participating in a religion and have participated in a very systematic religious structure that's seeking to answer where they come from, what's wrong with this world, what is the meaning of my existence, and what happens when I die. And the worldview has an umbrella title placed over it that's often called science, but it's inherently religious because it's seeking to answer these questions. And again, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I'm gearing up for church. I'm like playing this through my head. I'm like, oh man, I should be like praying on the text and stuff. And in my head, I told this person these things and I said to them, whether you recognize it or not, you're more religious than I am. The difference is you're doing all these things to weigh your righteousness in light of a broken world and you're seeking to declare yourself just, but there's another way. Rather than counting yourself as righteous, you can have righteousness accounted to you through the person of the Lord Jesus. You can be counted righteous by faith. And something happened to me that doesn't happen very often, only a handful of times in my life. But I tell you, the joy of the Lord just began to come over me. In fact, I began to laugh and laugh. It was the funniest thing in prayer. Laugh and laugh and laugh because righteousness has been counted to me by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can tell you this. If you, by faith, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and say to him, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, he will account you as righteous. Amen. You know, I think about this young ruler. Whose righteousness was he counting on? His own or on Christ? Whose righteousness are you counting on? Your own or Christ? Listen, church, we preach Christ crucified. Paul said it's a stumbling block to the Jew and it's foolishness to the Gentile, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. Amen. It's very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And Peter said, verse 28, See, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come. Oh, Peter, I mean, he's just got to take a chance to speak here. He says, Jesus, we have left everything for you. And Jesus said to him, Peter, you are going to be rewarded in this life and in the life to come. I mean, you remember Peter and John, just fishermen, cleaning their nets when one day Jesus came and said to them, follow me, and they dropped everything and followed him. Then verse 31 tells us, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. 
And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Verse 34. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. Amazing, this kind of a trilogy in that, uh, this trinity in that verse right there to tell us of their lack of understanding of what Jesus was speaking of. They're, way, they're on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to make a way for the poor in spirit to find eternal life, to be set free from sin's power and consequence. Jesus was about to do the final work that would allow a man to be credited as righteous. By faith, forgiven, justified, born again, a new creation. But as the scripture foretold, this would happen through his death and resurrection. And Luke tells us, The disciples understood none of these things. It was hidden from them. They did not grasp it. I think this, I'm like, wow, Lord, what am I still yet to see about the amazing nature of your gospel and the work of the cross? We're going to spend eternity finding out, church. It's going to get better and better and better. Your grasp of the cross is not even this. On the cross, Christ paid for our sin. The accused and the condemned find mercy and grace in the cross. At the cross, the wrongs we've done were nailed to him. The wrongs done to us were nailed to him. At the cross, he died for our sin. At the cross, he gave us life again. Christ crucified the wisdom of God, Paul said. I think, man, may God grant us mercy that we would have a deeper understanding of the work of the cross. Verse 35, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man, it's interesting, blind. this blind man can't see. Just like things were hidden from the disciples, this man, physical things were hidden from his sight. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I I just love this cry of the blind man. That's, That's a prayer that the Father in heaven waits to hear his children say, Father, have mercy. Father, look upon your son and have mercy. I'm poor. I'm wretched. I'm blind, have mercy. It's it's a very childlike prayer. It's the same prayer that the tax collector had in the parable of Jesus. Very childlike. Remember, Jesus said, no one will ever see the kingdom of heaven unless they become like a child. The disciples had rebuked those who brought children to Jesus. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And at the cry of this blind man, crying out to the son of David that was childlike, have mercy on me. Look again at how the the crowd responds to him. Verse 39. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him, be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. They rebuked him, but he cried out all the more, God, have mercy on me. Verse 40. And Jesus stopped. (laughs) Jesus will never ignore the cry for mercy. 
Never. Jesus will never ignore the cry for mercy. And Jesus stopped and he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. This morning, uh, I'll just give you three quick applications from this text. Don't leave me hanging, guys. (laughs) Sorry, that's a joke from earlier this morning. Blake was saying when he was preaching last week, you know, he called the worship team. They didn't come. And then he, like, was staring at them. I said, come. So I said, don't, don't make me insecure this morning, guys. When I say, come, come. I want to give you three applications from the text this morning. The first one is this. Change your language. No one's good but God, church. Stop talking about good weather and good meals. Say it's a beautiful day. Say this is the day the Lord has made. Yes, dinner was delicious. I had a great holiday, and I'm thankful that the Lord allowed me to get away. Change your language so as to reflect that only God is good and that you understand that in your heart. The second thing is this. I want to encourage you. Ask God for a greater understanding and grasp of the cross. It's amazing that the disciples had spent nearly three years with Jesus at this time. And and maybe you've been walking with Jesus for three months or three years or 30 years. I'll tell you what. We don't grasp the cross like we're going to. And so ask the Lord in prayer, God, would you give me a greater understanding of the cross? Lord, when I read your word, would you help me to see what was accomplished on the cross? And the third thing is this. Make it your prayer, your life prayer. God, have mercy on me. We don't say that enough. You know, we say about People in situate, God have mercy on his souls. But it's not often enough that the church just says, Lord, individuals say, would you have mercy upon me? I've got nothing unless you have mercy. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's pray.